Today's episode of Between the Covers is brought to you by All Lit Up, Canada's independent online bookstore and literary space for readers of emerging, quirky, and acclaimed indie books. All Lit Up is your Canadian connection for award-winning fiction and poetry, author interviews, book roundups, recommendations, and more. The only online retailer dedicated to Canadian literature, All Lit Up features books from 60 literary publishers. And now U.S. readers can shop All Lit Up close to home and save on shipping when they purchase books from its new bookshop.org affiliate shop. Browse selected titles at bookshop.org slash shop slash all lit up. All lit up makes it easy to discover, buy, and collect exciting contemporary Canadian literature all in one place. Check out all lit up at www.alllitup.ca. That's a l l l i t u p dot c a. The last time Matthew Zapruder was on the show was for his book Why Poetry, a book that pulls off a magic trick of sorts, insofar as it is a great book for poets, a celebration of poetry, and an exploration of how poems do what they do and why what they do is important to the human experience. And at the same time, it manages to be a great book for people terrified of poetry or allergic to poetry or who love to read but can't find a way into poetry. His latest book, Story of a Poem, likewise creates a similar magic. On the one hand, you could say, and you would be right, that the book follows the making of one poem. Matthew dilates the moments of creative decision-making to demystify the revision process and or to orient us to the mysteries of revision, the things that can't be anticipated one draft to the next. So this book is an incredible gift for poets, but really the book is also as much about story and narrative, not just the story of this poem, not even primarily the story of this poem, but the stories that make up our sense of self, our sense of the world, and what happens when our world changes so much and in such a way that it challenges those stories, that it demands we show up differently to the world. How does one revise oneself? And this book becomes the story of a poet who has to do just that. And these two revisions of poet and poem each suggest paths forward to each other. And magically, somehow, this becomes a book both for prose writers and for poets, and also for simply people who need to find a new form in their lives. And perhaps, if they're writers, as an extension of that, need to find a new form for their writing. People really showed up for Matthew in Portland. The room was full, and full of a lot of love. Poets showed up from Annalise Gelman to Mary Shebist, prose writers from Lainey Zumas to Kevin Samsel, Samsel who introduces Matthew at the beginning. Before we begin, Between the Covers is listener-supported. If you enjoy what you hear today, consider joining the community of people, of writers, of poets, of translators, of artists, of readers, of anthropologists, of social scientists, and others who make this show possible. Every supporter gets the resource-rich email with each episode and can help brainstorm who to have on the show going forward. And then there are just simply a ton of other things to potentially choose from, including the bonus audio archive, which includes readings by such iconic poets as Jory Graham, Alice Oswald, Dion Brand, Rosemary Waldrop, Major Jackson, Forrest Gander, Victoria Chang, Arthur Z, Nikki Finney, Ross Gay, Ada Limon, and more. 
or the Tin House Early Readership subscription, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. You can check it all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation, live at Powell's Bookstore with Matthew Zapruder. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Hello. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming out tonight. Before we get started, a reminder to please silence your cell phones and devices. And you can always keep up with who's coming to Powell's by looking online at powells.com. You can also find our event calendars around the store by the information desk. And you can follow us on the social medias such as Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Tonight we're excited to welcome back Matthew Zapruder in conversation with David Naiman. That's right. Matthew is the author of several collections of poetry, including Father's Day, published by Copper Canyon in 2019, as well as Why Poetry, a book that celebrated the beauty and accessibility of poetry to the common reader. He has received a Guggenheim Fellowship, a William Carlos Williams Award, a May Sarton Award, and a Lannan Foundation Residency Fellowship in Marfa, Texas. He was co-founder and now editor-at-large at Wave Books and was the guest editor of Best American Poetry 2022. Matthew's new book, Story of a Poem, is a memoir that further explores the intricate details of the making of a poem and the true thoughts and lives behind the lines, specifically his own son. Citing the works of Salon, Merwin, Whitman, Hugo, O'Hara and others, story of a poem becomes a multifaceted revelation. Matthew is joined in conversation tonight by David Naiman. His writing has won a Pushcart Prize and has appeared in Best Small Fictions, Boulevard, Black Warrior Review, and elsewhere. He hosts the literary broadcast and podcast Between the Covers, which is being recorded tonight. You can find the archive of his excellent show at tinhouse.com slash podcasts. After tonight's talk, Matthew will be up here to sign books for you, and we ask that you line up right over here on the side of the room when that time comes. You can pay for your books after they are signed, uh, downstairs in the green room or the orange room by the exits. A reminder that we do close at 8.55 p.m. Now please welcome Matthew Zapruder and David Naiman. Hey there. <laughs> it's good to see you. You too. With your, your whole face. You were wearing the mask before. Um, yes. Yeah. It's been a while since I saw you in person. We, I think the last time, well, we saw each other in person at Tin House, but I remember doing the podcast at the radio station. That's right. I just remember the overpowering smell of like marijuana. <laughs> was there a, was yeah, there a smell? Yeah, it was great. Huh. It was great. It, well, Ursula Le Guin used to call it the great funky uh, yeah. station. Well, she's a huge KBOL. stoner. Yeah. Ursula Le Guin, yeah. huge stoner. Huge so. stoner. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thanks everybody for coming. Yeah, and I'm so happy to be on the podcast again. Well, you're going to start with a reading, right? Yeah, I'm going to read a bit from this new book, Story of a Poem, but do you want to say anything first? Well, the only thing I wanted to say is 
I think we're going to look back at this book in 10 years, and it's going to be one of those books that people read and immediately want to give to somebody. Um, just in my announcing this on social media, so many really accomplished writers and poets who've encountered your book already. Like I think of Alina Stefanescu, the poet and critic, mm -hmm. raving about it on, on Twitter when I was tweeting. And then uh, uh, Sabrina Oramark, who's been on the podcast for Happily, is, was mentioned she wished she lived here so she could be here, but that she's teaching your book next week. So oh, I have a feeling we're like at the beginning of a... Um, of something that's gonna happen, hand passed person to person um, through the enthusiasm that the book generates. Like like crypto? Like, <laughs> like cryptocurrency. <laughs> um, You're gonna get Larry destined David. Destined to be successful. Um, well, thanks for saying that. That's yeah, it's it's um I'm happy to share with everybody here and I'm so happy to be here with you talking. I'm, I love the podcast and really amazing to be at Powell's and see thank you, Kevin. And I did want to mention um, you know, the Plays of Pals are organizing, and um, I believe that on Labor Day, they're uh, walking out, correct? And, uh, you know, just to mention that there's lots of ways we can support the workers here at Pals who are amazing and make this place go. And um, I know there's a strike, there's a strike fund, there's things you can sign, but probably the most, you know, obvious thing is maybe not to cross the picket line and shop on Labor Day. So anyway, I hope it, I really hope it works out and that it just strengthens this great institution. Um, so yeah, I'm going to read, yeah, I'll read a few things from the book. And I guess I should just say before I begin, I started writing this book in fall 2018. I live in the Bay Area. Um, and it was a lot of things were going on in fall 2018, you remember? Uh, very bad time politically and also um it was a, the first really terrible fire season in northern california or at least you know uh, you know in recent memory and that was the year of the paradise fire that killed i think nine people and so and so it was just a lot we were all walking around wearing masks and it was it felt just super apocalyptic and um was so that was going on and i started doing a daily writing practice where i would um, I have a friend who lives in New York, a great poet whose name is Catherine Barnett, and I started. We started writing each other every day, um, at least 500 words a day, and we would just send send each other this writing, and you know, not to workshop. All we were allowed to say back to each other was "thank you" for this writing. So we did this for months, and so that was the material, uh, the basic material of this book was generated that way. And then I, of course, took me years to go back and figure out how to put it together. Um, I made every possible mistake one can make in writing a prose book, even though I had already, this was not even my first prose book, but still I seemed to find all sorts of new mistakes. The one idea I had was to try to write a single poem and write about the writing of this poem. So in the book there are uh, drafts, like facsimile drafts of, the, of this poem that I was writing, and then I sort of show the draft, and I talk about the writing, but also talk about what was going on in my, in my life. So anyway, I think that's all you need to know. So. Uh, I'll read a bit from the first chapter. I woke up in California, first draft. It's 5 a.m. and the busy street is quiet. Outside the window, the leaves of the trees are black. Wires slice through the darkness, making dark shapes. The sky gradually becomes visible. I can feel Sarah and Simon still asleep in the rooms behind me. For a moment, I can almost imagine I'm at the prow of a ship, sitting still as the world rotates into unhelpful light. A little tremor shakes the desk, and I feel a flash of panic, but it's not an earthquake, just a lone truck passing. Last night, as I was putting him to bed, I told him that something would happen in two sleeps. It's something I've heard other parents say, and I found it coming out of my mouth. I didn't know if he'd heard me, lost as he so often was in singing one of his favorite songs. Often he will seem not to hear, but then a few hours or days later will repeat what was said or answer a question asked minutes or even hours ago. Sometimes months later, he will repeat something I said to him, laughing. It's as if he and I are in an endless conversation, the pace of which is slower than I could ever have imagined. All summer, I had been writing a new poem every morning and emailing it to Matt. He would send me a new poem back too. 
I told myself and believed that these were just practice for what would eventually be the real writing, a neat trick, impossible to deliberately replicate. I never had a plan or any idea where to begin. I would sometimes choose a phrase that seemed to glow with at least a little potential. This autumn morning, I remember Matt once showed me how you can start a poem by putting one or two lines in the middle of a page and then writing out from them, alternating a line before, then one after. He said this method came to him in a dream. Two sleeps I type in the middle of the page, then roll the platen up one line above it, something that could make sense as a line before, then back down to type something that could go after. In the redwoods, two sleeps watch over. Watch over what? I don't know. It's just a beginning, but as Bob Haas says, you can't revise nothing. Not until nothing becomes a few words. When you have no ideas or too many, it's best to find a few words that seem to have potential, for now inexplicable. The painter Degas once said to his friend Mallarmé, I want to write poems, but I have too many ideas. Mallarmé replied, poems, my dear Degas, are not made of ideas, but of words. Poetry makes nothing happen, W.H. Auden wrote, which doesn't mean it does nothing. It makes nothing happen. It activates the silence. You begin, and now there's something to listen to. Um, I'll read a bit more. Um, this is also kind of like a parenting book about uh, parenting a neuro neurodivergent child. And uh, yeah, so I write a bit about that, and we can talk about that too. I've always loved words for what they can do and for all the different things they can mean. I love how they feel in my mouth. In that way, I'm like all writers I know. I'm also very like my son. Now that I've become the parent of a son who is working so hard to achieve fluency in language, my respect for communication in all aspects of my life has increased. The simple act of reaching out in writing to say something to you and you hearing me and then responding, even if only in my imagination, because you are far away and I will most likely never know you, feels even more holy to me. The word autism causes a lot of uninformed fear. When I heard that word, I too was deathly afraid. I thought I knew what it meant. I had seen all those movies. I suddenly saw my son in a certain way, the present and future closed down. It shames me now to think how, before I met my son, I walked through the world. That word erased difference, variation, and possibility. My so-called knowledge shadowed the world. I had to unlearn that word. Of such linguistic reductions, I have learned necessarily to be rightly wary. When I read what I've written about my son above, it seems clearly true, but also hardly even a fraction of the story. It's not him, it's not even close to being him, which raises the question, what is the point of writing about him at all? And how can I reconcile this desire to understand more about him and myself through writing and also be the father I so much want to be? I want in my poems as in life always to see my son. So in them I never write autism, not out of shame or because I don't think it is real or to be elusive or mysterious, but for the opposite reason. Its meaning, its sound, blocks out all individuality and actuality. The pushing away of that word is not a denial, but the creating of a space so I and everyone else can truly encounter my son, just as we should encounter everyone. Through a painful, necessary process, I've begun to perceive what I never could have before. Often it is overwhelming. When I walk past people in the store, on the street, in an airport, I feel and see each life each in its difference, its limitation. And instead of turning away, I want to learn to embrace everyone. Audre Lorde writes, and this is Lorde, not me, I urge each one of us here to reach down into that deep place of knowledge inside herself and touch that terror and loathing of any difference that lives there. See whose face it wears. Each time I read her words, I think about how my own easy liberalism for so long, smugly masked and intensely hierarchical, 
and judgmental attitude toward anyone I did not perceive as gifted, smart, quick, cultured. This judgment was, of course, ultimately directed towards myself, as I constantly fell short of my own impossible ideals. I have, for my whole life, misunderstood difference. I thought difference from the ideal was a mortal flaw, something to be fixed or hidden or despised. I turned that outward and inward. Now, as a father, I must reach down into myself and touch the terror of difference, which is, of course, my own, the terror and the difference. Both wear my own face. There's something past that fear, the possibility of acceptance, which in turn opens up the possibility of love. My love draws me onward. Yet the most painful thing for me is to admit that my own fear still so often overtakes me. The struggle is in the poems, and I write them to stay awake, to remember. Um, I'll read this one little final section, then we can talk. Um, this is a quote from the poet Paul Valéry. A fine line of poetry is a fruit plucked from the tree, but which tree? This leads to the curious point of trying to make the tree whose fruit would be this fruit. Finally, then, it is the fruit of two trees, one hidden, unknowable, which produced the fruit, the other, the work in which the fruit takes a more or less necessary place. Okay, I'll stop for a second and say, I think what he means is there's a tree that we can't see that somewhere beyond that drops these moments of imagination or difference or creativity or the line, if you're a poet, into our world. And then our job is to build the thing that that fruit, that moment can live in. According to Wikipedia, to form a fruit, one tree sends the pollen out. It drifts until it finds the other. Some trees do self-pollinate, it is true, but those trees grow less fruit. Sometimes Wikipedia is as beautiful as any poem. This is Wikipedia. The pollination process requires a carrier for the pollen, which can be animal, wind, or human intervention. You've been given the line, the image, the idea. Like a child or a new love, it is never what you expected. It wants you to change your life. You hear the line, it comes from somewhere, You've gathered or maybe fathered it. It comes to you or you to it. No one can tell you how it happens. Sometimes you write for a while, feeling nothing, until almost unnoticed, something starts with mysterious life to glow. You feel yourself resist its strangeness. What does it mean? Is that what you meant to say? What do you do with it then? You cannot turn away. Make somewhere for it to live and belong. It is your job to imagine and invent that tree on which the treasured fruit could happily thrive, the strange treasure of a line or image or symbol, a word or thought or moment, needs the poem so that it can be more than itself in isolation, so that it can be truly perceived. Try to remember. The whole point of writing that first draft is just to hear the music. And then once you hear the music, you look for what could contain it. Reverse engineering, farewell old tree, hello something else from which can hang the music you've found. Try to be quiet for once, to listen for something you love. Let it come to you. Then build a structure in which what you love, a line, an image, a word, can exist. A situation, a scene, a sonnet, a huzzle, an ode, an abandoned palace, a happy graveyard, a breeze, a ghost ship's wake, a map in winter, a rose factory, someone crossing the ocean in a fabulously unseaworthy craft, a marriage, a meal, a crucial childhood memory that never occurred, a radio being endlessly, impatiently tuned, so on and so on and so on, until the line can live there. You hear them, then the poem can begin. Well, it's a little strange that the two times we've talked now, we're talking about books of prose, <laughs> given how many books of poetry you have. But I think for me, and I know this is different for you, the two books of prose share a similar spirit. Um, why poetry? I don't know why. I'm glad you brought up music because 
I don't know why it feels like a particularly American weird relationship to poetry, like a fear of poetry, a fear of what it means to not understand it or to understand where you are mm. in, in asking these questions around orientation that you wouldn't ask if you were at the symphony, like you wouldn't ask, what does this mean? But in poetry, you did this really remarkable thing in why poetry of inviting us very slowly and gently into what it means to go into a place of unknowing and what other things you can discover in this place of unknowing. And I feel like you also do this in the new book. For instance, here's, here's a line from story of a poem. Poetry gives us the gift of allowing us to forget momentarily that communicating is mostly functional. If we allow language to drift away from us and don't try to use it, but rather follow it, we can discover something. And I know the new book is more personal and vulnerable and intimate. It could be called as much as the story of a poem, the story of a father, the story of a story, the story of revision. But I also think it could be called Why Poetry, like your last book. But I know you feel like it has an inverted relationship. So maybe you could just speak to the ways you feel like the book is the same or different in terms of thinking about, because in this book you are inviting us into an intimate creative space among other intimacies around how a poem is composed, which also is about abandoning and rewriting and uh, a, a whole bunch of things you might never have anticipated on the second draft mm -hmm. or the fifth draft. Um, and we get that. You get, we get that slowness and then the, also the unknowing of where it's going to go next. Mm -hmm. When I, when I said it was inverted, I meant that, you know, why poetry was almost like an experiment. It was sort of like, what would happen if I, as a poet, took the questions that people, you know, we call civilians, you know, non-poets, uh, ask about poetry, you know, and, and like, instead of being sort of eye-rolly about it or like, or like, you know, oh, I can't possibly be bothered to explain what I mean, you know, to say like, okay, well, what, what, where do these questions come from? Why do people ask them? What, what are they, you know, let's, let's really like dig into it, you know? So it was almost like kind of like an outside out idea. Like, like there's this thing happening in the world. I'm going to deal with the thing and sort of bore, bore in deeper and deeper into poems and see if I can find some answers. This was a different project in the sense that it emerged from the desire to just make language, which is more of a poetry type of impulse, I think, and then to see what I, it is I needed to write about. I mean, I knew there were some subjects, obviously, that were concerning me, um, you know, that I could predict the book would circle around, you know, my parenting experience, you know, the environmental catastrophe that we're all living in, um, you know, uh, our political situation, et cetera, and, and writing poems. But I just, I didn't know, I didn't have any agenda except just to make make writing and see what I learned from it. But it's kind of funny that it ended up in a lot of ways in some of the same places. Um, and it was important to me also in this book to, um, I call it a process memoir, which is uh, unattractive language. But I wanted the process, the making, the, the sort of the, the gears, the machinery to be really visible in this book. I thought that would be cool um, and, 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 and hopefully feel like it could connect with people. You know, that was another way of maybe opening up the same sorts of things about poetry, but sort of by displaying the making of it, I guess, instead of more like coming from the outside and talking about poems that I love, which is more what why poetry is, mm. yeah. Well, when your son is diagnosed with autism, you invite us into the unknowing of your, you becoming unmoored from your own sense of self. And you say that your life needs a new form and that because your life needs a new form, your writing needs a new form. Mm. And you say that the, new form can't be poetry or prose or needs to be both in some way. And my question for you is around that. Not that you need a new form, but you so persuasively argue for poetry, for instance, saying, reading a poem, entering another's imagination is a recognition both of a difference and separateness and the demonstration of the possibility of communion so why, why the prose part? 
Um, mm. Why did you feel like the form why needed? Pros. Why? Yeah, why press? <laughs> <laughs> why do you feel like the new form needed narrative? Why yeah. did it need story as the story of the poem and the story of you out, you know, juxtaposed and interwoven with, with the poetic form? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I'm probably, you know, I'll do my best to answer. I think, um, to be honest, again, a lot of it was instinctual. It was just sort of like, I felt like I needed to do something else. I didn't have like a conceptual reason. I just had this impulse. And I'm sure most people in this room are familiar with this feeling. Many writers in this room I know, they, they, you feel the impulse first and you in the making, the desire to make something. And then after you've made it, you understand why you needed to. But in this case, I did think it had to do with time. Um, I talk about this in the book, that a poem is an instance in time. It, it's, 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 it's very much, the lyric is almost always, um, it has an imminence to it, like a, like a singularity of time. And uh, what, one thing that happened was is that, uh, this happened sort of in the parts that I was reading from or whatever. I wrote a poem and uh, you know, it was kind of a, it was a pretty intensely personal poem about um, you know, my son's, you know, finding out my son was on the autism spectrum and my wife and other stuff. And it was published in the New Yorker um, so it was widely read, and it was, it was just a moment of my life. It was a very true moment. It was a real thing that happened, but it was just one moment of my life. It was one thing that happened with me and my son. It was one thing. And I had this terror that, like, that's what people would think was everything about my experience. So I thought I need to do something different with time and narrative and narrative. <laughs> I mean, the prose writers know this already, but narrative allows you to do different things with time. And so... But I thought, was well, there a way to do both? Can I make a new form? It sounds a little grandiose. Um, but, but, but like I thought, is there a new form, which is a poem in its making, and the prose around the making of it? And can this become a, a, new, a, new, yeah, a new form? And that was the form I needed. I didn't need just prose. I didn't need just poems. I needed those things too. But I needed this new form, which is this book. And I feel like anyone could write a book like this about their lives. You know, they could, they could write, they could do different things with time to show us how things unfold and emerge. That, so that was the idea. I mean, I was terrified it wouldn't work, but I wanted people to feel time and my encounter with time. Well, yeah. let me ask you a question about time and push back if this feels forced. But you say about your son that he always seems to be in a slow conversation, not in the moment seeming to be listening, but then maybe responding to something you said a week before or a month before. So it's a different, a different relationship to time. Could we look at this as, this, as like a new form, the slow poem in, in, that's matching that in the yeah. sense that we're seeing this poem, you've dilated the moment. And so it's operating in a different, it's operating within time, but it's operating in a different time. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's very accurate. I mean, I think I probably... The reason I started talk, thinking about this was because I was spending so much time with my son. You know, I don't, and again, this is an example of this. I didn't have this as a concept, but I thought, oh, there's something about time that's going on here that I'm learning, you know, and like that I, I'm, I'm a very impatient, impulsive person. I had to just totally recalibrate myself, as, as most parents do, I think, in any circumstance, or most people probably have to do in different ways. But like in this particular case, I had to really shut up and listen and be patient and rethink how I operated with language in order to be here, be able to relate to this person, you know, this new person who I loved more than life itself, you know, but I just wasn't listening. I also just like love process. Like I will read a process book about anything. Like somebody's like a knife sharpener or like, or like, like grows like gophers or something. Like, I don't care, like anything, like I'm interested in process. You know, and so I, like, I actually found it kind of interesting to think about the making of a poem and to try to explain it. You know, like, like how do you explain making a piece of writing? It's weird because you're writing when you're doing it. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's like, but it was fascinating. It was fun and, and interesting. So that too, I guess it was also, let's, let's not leave the fun out of this. You know, there's a lot of unfun things going on in 2018, but it's fun to write at least, you know. <laughs> well, this book is as much about revising a poem as it is about revising oneself. And it feels like how you decide to ultimately see your son will determine how much you can preserve and defend 
your familiar self. Mm-hmm. For instance, the question, are you going to see him in relationship to the norm and measure him in terms of aspiring towards normal metrics? Mm-hmm. And if you do, or if you did, which you don't, I think you could probably preserve your sense of self in a certain way as the representative of the norm, even though your son essentially starts in a place of insufficiency, essentially. Or do you look at your son on his own terms and in his own way? Like I was thinking of, you have these great moments in the book. I'm going to quote from a different book, actually, because Naomi Klein also is raising a, a neuroatypical son and writes about it in her new book, Doppelganger, which is a lot about mirroring, but there's also mirroring in developmental terms, Mm -hmm. whether you mirror what you see. And she says in her book, does your son mirror, she's asked. And then she says, do I want him to? Maybe we need a few people who are tuned in to their own inner music, who are portals, not mirrors. But if you go that route, which is so interesting in this book that you go that route that requires you to unlearn a lot, to sort of strip down and rebuild your own sense of self. So when you're talking about process, one of the processes we go through is like you inviting us into the unfinished you and the drafts of fatherhood. Um, And I guess I was hoping you could speak more into that. It's incredibly, I don't know if generous is the right word, It's very intimate. Um, We see you in a very unfinished state in various ways. Mm -hmm. And I would just love to hear about um, rendering yourself on the page in that way. Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, my kid, it's funny. I mean, I'm I'm happy to talk about my kid and I, I, you know, but I don't really even think this book is that much about him, actually. I mean, of course, he's appears a lot in it, but it's it's I guess another our alternate title for this book could be like how not to be an asshole maybe like cause, cause I mean honestly like I think that I just didn't realize like what an ableist jerk I was until I had a kid who you know who was different and I mean not to put too fine a point on it and so I just and other and that made me think of other things all the other ways in my privilege and my the way I embody those things and and like just trying to and I, I just had the sense of the only way to even start to change was to write through it. And I had to write it down. And Elizabeth Bishop has that great last line from one art, you know, though it may look like, write it like disaster. You know, and like this, maybe it felt like a disaster in a way, but when I started writing, it didn't feel like a disaster. It just felt like change. You know, and I think that I thought, oh, why when we write, do we feel like things need to be perfect? Like, why does the end result of a poem need to be perfect? That's madness you know that's like that's it's not it's 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 an illness i wanted to just open all these things up because i feel like that's the trouble of this world and so you know the trouble in me is the trouble everywhere it's the trouble with all parents who who you know even if they're doing their you know not through any inimical intent they do violence to their children by not seeing them this is something that all parents do all parents have this struggle to see their kids you know, and not, and not, you know, not, you know, run roughshod over them or whatever. And so, so I think that same thing true for making art. And I guess, I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but I just, I just had the sense that like, I needed to do this to survive. And I did not know what was going to happen. I didn't know if I'd make a book. I mean, this book looks great. It's great. It's a book. But like, that wasn't, you know, I wasn't like, oh, I need to make a book. I was like, I need to fucking live. You know, I need to survive. I need to stop being, I need to, I need to live up to who I am with my kid, you know, all these things. And like, that's what I need. And, and, you know, I didn't know if it'd be a a single poem or a book or an essay or just like, or nothing, a bunch of notes that I threw away, but it's, it was, this was about surviving. So making myself bare on the page, as you're saying, or or whatever, or like showing myself in process, it's, it felt completely like there was no other way through, like there was no other way through. I could have made a decision at some point to just put this thing away because I was too ashamed or whatever, but but I also think that people like me who live in bodies like me have an obligation, I think, to show themselves in process. You know, I walk around the world looking a certain way, absorbing all this privilege, and it's talk, 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 unless you just give up, give yourself, start to give yourself up a little bit, you know? 
and I'm, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not trying to paint myself out to being anything I'm not. I'm just saying that that felt like real to me as opposed to a lot of talk about it. You know, and that felt necessary to me too, but that, you know, because my kids got to live in a world with people like me. <laughs> so, you know, so if I can do a little thing to make it better, like I'm going to, I'm going to do that obviously. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I want to ask about naming and the mysteries of naming and language. It's something because of the uh, crafting with Ursula series I did last year, I've thought a lot about naming in the last year because it was an obsession with Le Guin in her writing, both the power for good and bad of naming and removing names. Mm, And so, for instance, in like Earthsea series, you had the name that was given to you at birth. You had the name that people would call you who just witnessed you in the world. Mm -hmm. And then you had your true name, which often you don't even know and sometimes is given to you by someone else at some Mm. sort of crucial juncture. It's like a reflection being being seen by another. Um, But it's this mystery around when it's one or the other with Mm. names. And I'm thinking about it in your book too, because I think about the ways a diagnosis can sometimes be liberating. Like I'm thinking with um, Asperger's becoming uh, officially a diagnosis. For some people, that was a moment of great recognition and a sense of being able to find community and legitimacy. But labels can also be a way of, of reducing or not seeing somebody mm-hmm. behind the label. And that's one of the things that you already touched on on the reading that you did. But I'm going to read a couple of things that, a couple of other things that you also said in the book. There's a brightness in my son's eyes, a force of life radiating from him that is obvious to anyone who comes to him without presupposition. But the word autism has a talismanic totalizing power. When writing or talking about him, I feel like I am constantly in danger of narrowing him as a person through how I write, overly defining him, but I want to keep trying to understand. The only way I can is through writing. Autism, the word, erased difference, variation, and possibility. My so-called knowledge shadowed the world. I had to unlearn the word. I want in my poems, as in life, always to see my son. So in them, I never write autism. Its meaning, its sound, blocks out all individuality and actuality. I'd love to hear more about it in relationship to your son, but also more generally in, in regards to poetry and language, about how to write in a way that doesn't shadow the world, that evokes the world, um, but n- without casting a shadow of the word over the world. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're giving me an opportunity to talk about this because you know I, I do want to stress that, I mean, in the passage, I think, I hope it's clear that that's for me, that word is a problem. I don't think that word is a problem for other people. I think that people should use that word as much as they want, I don't think it's an inherently problematic thing. I just meant in my situation, in my that point in my life, it was not helpful. It might actually be more helpful now, frankly, than you know these words were written many years ago. So, so I, I just yeah, I want to make sure I say that that I'm not like saying don't use that word or something like that. That's not, I don't feel that way. I mean, when you were reading that, I was just thinking, God, like it's in a way I always say the opposite thing about words and about language. I talk about their power, their multiplicity, their, their ability to illuminate things, you know? So like, I'm, I don't know. I, I think that it's, it's like most things, it just mostly depends on how something is, a word is used. And I think for me at that moment in my life, that word was a shadow, it was a shadowing word. But, you know, again, I mean, that's not so much true now, I wouldn't say. So, so I, th- I think, yeah, I, I don't know. Sometimes I read this book. It's terrible. I'm going to admit this. Sometimes I read it and I think, not that I don't know what I meant, but that it was so in a time of something that, that, that I think now, like, oh, I'm a little bit of a different person now. Mm. I don't know. I don't know if other writers have that experience. Um, mm. you know, but I, but I, I, I think because of the intensity of the personal stuff that was going on, too, it was like, um, you know, was, was a very, uh, I had very strong feelings about that particular word in my own writing, I guess. Mm. 
Um, but it's kind of funny past you because I repeat it over and over again as I'm saying I don't say it, <laughs> which is like, you actually are saying it a lot, dude. <laughs> but, but yeah, so, so, you know, but it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's just interesting to open those things up and try to, try to think about them. And I, I don't, as far as a word, words go, I mean, for me, like, if I'm pulling them apart and looking at them and examining them and turning them and seeing them in a different light, that's a joy for me with any word. And so, and that's, I feel like, is my basic job. And then to put them in some structure that will illuminate them or bring them back to life or, or make a communion or something. Yeah. So, yeah, as a poet, particularly in poetry, I guess. So. Well, this is going to sound like a wild aside, but I think it's related. You have this strange and great meditation on Rupi Kaur versus Basho. <laughs> <laughs> she, Rupi, like is that how you say it? Rupi, like is it Rupi Kaur? Rupi Kaur, I'm actually not sure. I've never okay. it, but yeah, Kaur, I think. Um, yeah. She's one of the most successful poets. She keeps his store in business, basically, right, Kevin? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's one of the most successful poets. She's yeah. an Instagram poet. Yeah. Her detractors would say her poems look like Hallmark <laughs> card-like poems. Um, and you contrast her to Basho, the haiku master. But it feels like this... This questioning, which is, I think, generous, you're very generous on both sides as you go into this juxtaposition, is about naming and language. It's about the general versus the specific, and it's about norms versus diverging mm. from the norms. And I'm, I was hoping maybe you could spend a moment with what that meditation's doing in, in this book. I'm very bored with this industry of like poets uh, condemning Rupi Kaur. It's like I find it I find it tedious. Like these articles explaining me fifteen thousand words explaining me why she's not a good poet, and I'm like, well, what do you say to the millions of people who actually like her poems that they're, you know, like like so it was much more interesting for me to try to think about what it is that she's doing in her poems that 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 is so meaningful to people. And as I thought about that. You know, and this is, again, like one of those things I just started writing to my friend Catherine. I don't know why. I probably saw some article about, you know, the nine millionth article explaining why Ruby Cower wasn't a good poet. And I was like, ugh. And then I saw I probably just started writing. I was like, have, have I ever actually read any of her poems? Like, I'm not sure I have. And so then I read them. And, you know, I, and, and in, the, in the writing I do about her, I, I talk a lot about, and it's related actually to your question about, you know, the word autism or whatever, because I think a lot about public language and the public nature of language and the way that language can create these communal spaces that are people so desperately need. And I think that's the kind of thing that she does as a poet, which is why I think that a lot of poets whose, whose interests might be a lot more in the private nature of language, the private as it becomes public, are, and, and her interest is more in just the public nature of language or the public experience of language, the communal experience, I think that that's why a lot of poets can't relate to what she's doing or they think it sounds bad or it's not well written or whatever because she's doing something different. And I was just thinking about, you know, like what, you know, what I'm trying to do. I was thinking about what I was trying to do in my own poems. Like, who am I writing for? Like, what am I writing these poems for? Like, like how public do I want them to be? Like, how much of my inside self and how much of you all, are, you know, all those things. And like, I thought it was just super interesting to look at her, her writing and like actually close read the poems. Um, it's, I mean, if you end up reading the book, you see, I mean, I was like, it's, I could have written much more about her, about her poems. I mean, I don't know, you know, it's kind of unfair to compare her to Basho. I mean, it's unfair to compare anybody to Basho, but there are similarly short, short poems, I right. guess. So, so I won't mention that, but yeah, but no, I like, I mean, I like thinking about her. It was cool. Yeah. I, later in the past, I compared her to Stephen Wallace Stevens, which seems really almost perverse to do that. Um, but <laughs> I don't know. I think Stevens comes off worse than she does, actually, in my comparison, I would say. You know, he was kind of a jerk. He was a jerk. Yeah, a big-time jerk. Yeah. Good poet, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to I spend a moment with the prologue, which is your life before your son's diagnosis, I think, up until your son's diagnosis, the meeting of your wife, going to San Francisco, starting a doctoral program, dropping out of the doctoral program, becoming a poet. Mm -hmm. um, but it's all told in the third person, unlike the rest of the book. And I have like, I mean, on a given day, I have a different idea why. But mm. why, why do we get this? Well, I want to hear some of your ideas. <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> well, I just wondered if it was related to the, um, a sense of distance from mm -hmm. how you 
you've changed, you've transformed since then. So you're looking back at a different self. There, so in a sense, you're looking back at a character. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be one thought. Um, yeah, but, character, definitely, yeah. Um, well, I can just say in the process sense, you know, I, so I explained when I read, like, what this book was, kind of that I was writing this single poem and writing about my life. I, you know, I gave you some information, right? And so in the book itself, I knew I needed to do that. I couldn't just start with me writing a poem and this draft from the typewriter. It's like, what the hell is this guy doing? So I, I knew I had to say something first. And every time I tried to say anything, it was awful. I, I have, like, at least 50 drafts. Of, of this preface or introduction or whatever, and they're so bad. It's like a compendium of different, like, it's almost like a taxonomy of mansplaining. It's like, it's like there, I didn't know there were that many different ways you could mansplain, but apparently there are. So, so I mean, I was just like, it, 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 like everything I tried to do felt terrible. I couldn't get out of this, this something was wrong, and I didn't know what it was. It was just like bad. And, and, and then I was at a talk somebody was giving, um, and they said something about how every story begins with once upon a time, whether it's said or not. That's like every narrative, every story begins with that. And I thought, huh, okay, well, I've run out of ideas. So I just typed once upon a time, <laughs> you know, into my, on my screen or whatever. And then what came out was the third person. I started telling the story in the third person, and it was incredibly easy to tell the story in the third person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could come up with reasons why. I mean, I think your explanation is probably as good a reason as any. Um, some distance, a little bit of an opportunity to kind of be funny without being mean funny. And because if you're funny about your own experience from the first person, it can feel a little bit sort of like fake. You're actually like humble bragging. But somehow, like being from the third person, it was like a little easier to be a little jokey. I mean, I was like a you know, 90s in San Francisco with like dyed hair, like in a terrible band. I mean, there's a lot of material to be funny about. And also, I think there was a way too, uh, the last thing I'll say about it is that there was a way that I could also be compassionate to this younger person by using the third person in a way that almost like, dare I say, like parental to them, like to be like, yeah, it's okay. You were acting like a bit of a goofball, but that's what you're supposed to do when you're in your 20s. <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, so I wasn't like not be mean to myself in a way, I guess. Like uh, I once had a diminutive personal trainer. Um, she used to, like if I was saying something self-deprecating, which happened like nine times a session, she, she'd say, don't be mean to my friend Matthew. <laughs> so like, so, you know, I thought that was, a, don't be mean to my friend Matthew, you know. <laughs> well, as a way to end before we do uh, Q&A, I wanted to end with the Paul Valerie quote and the ways you use it in the book. Um, the quote about the tree and then building a world around the tree. Something, and I have to say, like this is my favorite part of the book, and also something I I know I'm going to be repeating on the show with guest after guest mm. because of it. And I'm just going to read some of the ways you've taken this quote and made your own thoughts. So here's one. What is the relationship between making poems and learning to be the father of an atypical child? And then at this point in the book, you suggest that they seem like the same struggle. To search out what was strange, beautiful, mysterious, and new in language and trying to make a place for it. Mm -hmm. But my favorite one is around the writing advice, kill your darling. So people who don't know what kill your darlings is, is this, particularly with prose writers, I think, is you have this precious sentence or mm. sequence of sentences that have been safeguarded from all editing because they're so <laughs> wonderful, <laughs> but are genius, typically yeah. overwrought. Um, and you're supposed to kill all of those. Yeah, it's like this idea that you have to like slaughter your darling. I, I always say Faulkner said it, but I don't know if that's true. But like... You have to, that's the only way you're going to get to like the real draft, the end draft is by giving up the thing that you love the most or whatever, in your own writing or something. And you say, in poetry, don't kill your darlings. Instead, burn everything else and keep the lines you love without reason and rebuild a world for them to live. I love that. And I feel like it applies to a whole bunch of things because the book has looming in the background constantly the wildfires Mm -hmm. and Trump. Like you could say... um, I want to have a city that's beside a river that I could go down to and drink the water from the river. How would I build that city? So mm-hmm. like start from there and then build the city up from, from the river. So I was hoping 
with this notion, back to story, where you say the fragility of the story is the true story, if maybe we could end with you going to visit Merwin near the end of his life, mm. you're not sure he's going to accept meeting you, and what he's doing in Hawaii and the way you see his life having a sense of unity and then maybe in the ways in which that unity sort of reflects back on the sort of unity mm -hmm. that you're looking for in your own life. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know W.S. Merwin, who's late, the late W.S. Merwin, he, he uh, lived in Maui for, I think, 30 years, and he um, basically turned this little valley. He lived in a town, believe it or not, called Haiku, um, which is uh, in the center part of Maui, and he turned it into a sanctuary for rare palm trees, so he would like get palm trees that were going extinct from all over the world and he would like plant, he planted them and built this whole thing. And so it's, yeah, it's, he spent the last 30 years of his life in addition to making his palms, you know, and meditating, you know, preserving these trees. And I did get to go there and, and meet him before, before he died. And um, it took me a while to realize like trees were like sort of a light motif of this book, <laughs> but perhaps obvious, but like I didn't really realize like how, how they connected things in that Valerie quote about the tree and like, Merwin the trees and of course you know the the burning of the trees and in 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 the wildfires and all these things like sort of formed kind of like this musical through line or whatever. Um, the thing I guess I'll say just to end is that the strange thing that happened with this book is so you know I was writing a book of prose about writing a single poem and then I kind of get to the end. Spoiler alert! Like I finished the poem. And then I realized that all along the way, the prose writing I was doing was actually seeding, S-E-E-D-I-N-G, seeding a, a, a new poem, which I actually my friend Gabriel Cahane is here, a composer. He was, uh, had asked me to write a poem for a piece of music that he was going to write. And so like during the time that I was sort of making and finishing this book, the prose was generating this new poem that's, that's at the end of the book. So it's kind of this like endless cycle of like the poetry makes the prose and the prose makes the poems. And at the end of that poem, uh, a lot of it's about being in the Bay Area during the wildfires. And like the end of the poem, um, you know, talks about the redwood trees that won't return, um, that were burned and won't return. And, uh, you know, I have to say, um, I had a lot of trouble ending the poem and Gabe, Gabriel was like, made me use those lines at the end. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. Yes, you did. You like did a good edit there, but like, cause I'd written them, but then I was like, ah, it's not a good ending. And you were like, yes, it is. It's a perfect ending. So, so, so that's what, how the book ends as well with these trees. And like, it's a little depressing because it says that they won't come back. But I think also, you know, it's like just one, again, one moment, like one terrible moment of losing something and then other things come from that. So yeah, yeah I think that that's, that's just how it is. I mean, you can't, you could wish it was different, but it, it isn't, you know, so. Well, for the question and answer, if you're willing to be on the podcast since we're recording, you can come up and I'll hand the mic to you. And if you don't want to be on the podcast, you can ask the question from your seat. Oh, yeah. It's a big decision you have to make. I say be on the podcast. Be on the podcast. The podcast is great. Um, so you say how having a neurodivergent kid made it so you... And let me just uh, make sure I'm getting it right here. You felt like you had to reject some of the perhaps ideals that you previously held. Is that correct? Yeah, or just cultural um, kind of training, maybe. Yeah. yeah. So, do you feel like now that you deconstructed those ideals, that you have reconstructed new ideals, or do you feel like it's still just existing in this amorphous space that you just continue to move forward with? I'm a work in progress, I would yeah, say. Um, I think, you know, I mean, I grew up in a certain way, in a certain place, and I, and I, I you know, I kind of am who I am, and so I have to, like, kind of continually check myself. But I think, it, I think things change a lot. So, yes, I think new things have, have arisen, for sure. I mean, and it's actually, everything is so much better when I let go of these, like, very narrow ideas of, achievement I just like I feel much better and I feel just a lot more appreciation and like love for people basically honestly and then a kind of like tightness or like a sort of like a lack of generosity starts to 
a lack of generosity starts to dissipate. That's a weird thing to say, but like a, a, a kind of like a selfishness maybe, or like a narrowness expands or grows, and it feels like there's more room to breathe, I guess, I would say. And it's just a better way to move through the world, you know? I really, I'm sure of that, no doubt about it. So. Thank, you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Yeah. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Gabriel. So I want to follow on that question. Earlier in the conversation, you said that perfection in poetry is a kind of illness. And I'm, I'm curious to know specifically vis-a-vis -vis process, how, how does the sort of evolution of, of your cosmology around achievement change when you're in the room writing uh, like you talk about the end of Final Privacy Song, the, the poem that, that ends the book, mm -hmm. and feeling like the ending was terrible. What becomes the new metric mm -hmm. for knowing when something's done if perfection is no longer the ideal? Uh, maybe it wasn't terrible enough was the problem. I mean, some, sometimes I think that, you know, I mean, fortunately, you know, I'm, I'm of an age and of a kind of artistic age that where brokenness and, and, and unevenness and roughness were, were aesthetically um, foregrounded and a lot of the, particularly in the music I was listening to and playing to. So I kind of like already had, like I went into writing poetry already with this idea that I wasn't trying to make these perfect objects. What I think about now a lot, and I've thought about this for years, is that I really don't think a poem is finished for me until there's something in it that I don't understand. Like I need there to be something in there that genuinely mystifies me. That like if you ask me, like I, I really, but I know, I know it's true and like it's real, but I couldn't say why it's there exactly, you know. If I know too much about how to make it, it feels over controlled or something. And so I, I don't, so I think that's how I think about it. And so when I think about a poem, it's not, for me, it's like, I hate all these euphemisms because they're always like weird, totally late capitalist euphemisms, but like, poem, it's not working, you know, or whatever, but like, like good, poem should never work. They should be lazy. And, <laughs> but like, but, but I mean, but the poem that's not fulfilling itself or whatever, there you go again. But like, but, but like, um, it's because it's not, it's, it's not failing in, at a certain point. It, is, it isn't, it's just not making enough mistakes or it's not, it's not, it knows too much or I know too much about it or something. And again, I think that comes from my parenting also. You know, like I just am like, you know, when my son does something different or unexpected, you know, I've, if I'm in the right mood, I like, that's, I really enjoy that. I'd like, I'm like, it's great. I love him. I love the stuff he does. And I don't care that it's like not what every single other kid on the playground is doing at the exact same time or whatever. I mean, I do sometimes care a lot about that. And at those moments, it's, I, I'm kind of, you know, living a life that's not, I'm not living my life in a way that is getting, you know, getting everything you can out of life. And then when I can let go of that and just like laugh or get in his play or something, it's awesome, you know, so it doesn't hurt anybody. So I think the same thing is true for poems. It's like they have to be bad, a little bit bad, a little bit naughty. <laughs> I don't know if that answers the question or not, but yeah. I just wanted to follow up on what you just said, and I'm wondering when you're writing prose versus poetry, how that experience of finding the thing that's mis the, the, the mysticism, the, the mystification, because um, it's it's a little bit different with prose and poetry. Mm -hmm. So how how do you experience, um, you know, fumbling through a topic and then and then uh, the the failure sort of uh, experience between one genre and the other. That's a great question. You're, I think you're quite right. It's like sort of easier to slip into a kind of like luxury space with prose, especially for me, sadly. I think again, just always, you know, for me in the the rewriting process and the re-rewriting process and the rewriting process, it's, 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 I think of the opposite of what people, some people might think of as rewriting. I'm not trying to make it perfect or impervious or faultless, I'm trying to do the exact opposite. I want to be present in the prose so that it's clear that I'm a person who's thinking through things and it's provisional and it's questioning. And you know, I try to infuse this book with that spirit. I'm sure there are moments when I slip into a kind of certainty that I don't really believe in. 
it requires a lot of attention for me in writing prose to not, to, and, and in poetry it's just a little easier to manage because it's just less real estate. You know, it's like, it's, it's more, it's just fewer words. <laughs> so it's kind of, but yeah, I think that's a very percept, I mean, that is a very perceptive question and it's exhausting. It's why it took so long to write this book. So long, my poor wife. I mean, she was like, you have to finish. Because I would just complain all the time. You know, so she, she was just like, you have to finish this. I can't stand hearing about it anymore. You know, my, my loving, <laughs> lovely wife. But, but anyway, so yeah, so it was, it was, that was the rewriting process more for me, was to like, was to, was to re-infuse myself as a human in the, in the, in the lines, you know. Um, well, thank you for your questions, and thank you for your questions, and thank you for including me. Well, let's give it up for Matthew's approval. Yeah. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Matthew Zapruder at matthewzapruder.com. And you can find out more about transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests and every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation of things I discovered while preparing for it, things referenced during it, and places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards, including the bonus audio archive, the Tin House Early Readership subscription, and receiving a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Michelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Browning. 